A cyclical approach to life allows for both the ebb and the flow, the waxing and waning, the luminosity and the darkness. If something is lost, perhaps it can also be found again. Hello and welcome to the Ocean Impact Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Silverwood. And our guest on the podcast today is Dr. Eski Britton, who is an Irish surfer, a big wave surfer, a marine social scientist, an author, an artist, and an ocean leader. And I really enjoyed this conversation with Eski. She's part of a growing community of academics and passionate individuals around the world, including some previous Ocean Impact podcast guests, including Dr. Cliff Capono and Wallace J. Nichols, who are really exploring the power of the ocean and the power of water to heal and to really understand Homo sapiens. We have an incredible affinity for water to be on, under, or above salt water or any type of water. And the healing properties of this blue health movement are really just very exciting for me. I'm sure you'll find them similarly interesting. A quick update on the Ocean Impact Pitch Fest. We're midway through September 2021 and we've just announced a one-week extension to the Ocean Impact Pitch Fest and the HP Generation Impact Incubator application period. You now have until the 28th of September 2021 to get your applications in. So move quickly, you still have time. We recorded this podcast with Eski over Instagram Live, her tuning in from the west coast of Ireland, myself from the northern beaches of Sydney, and it just felt so nice to connect with this incredible voice for the ocean. We speak a lot about her new book, Salt Water in the Blood, that has literally just been released. And it is a beautiful, poetic memoir of her very, very interesting life, her exposure to the ocean from a very young age, from a surfing bloodline. And as I said before, how she has chosen to indulge her academic pursuit into really understanding surfing and understanding how salt water is so integral, so innate in our own human story. Hope you enjoy the podcast. Thanks as always for listening in. Hi, Eski. You've hey. made it to our IG live. Hello. Woo! <laughs> Just a fight. <laughs> hey. Oh, good to see you. Hi, everyone from the west coast of Ireland. We're, the yeah. west coast of Ireland. Tell us a little bit about the west coast of Ireland today. You've had a chance to get out there. I know it's early morning. You've had a chance to see the ocean today yet? Yeah, I mean, it's great from where we live. We've, we've got the ocean on our doorstep. Uh, we're, September time for us is when we start to shift into kind of swell season, but it's been a really slow start. So um, uh, fingers crossed there's something on the way. we been busy like swimming and kayaking and doing anything and everything else to get in the water. <laughs> Good one. And keeping a very close eye on the, the charts and the weather patterns to see what might be brewing for you. Yeah, you bet. Um, so we're hoping for a good winter. Yeah, awesome. There's going to be so much to talk about in today's conversation and a lot of that around this idea of being connected, not just to the ocean, but to all the natural cycles that are around us that perhaps we've lost quite a bit of touch with. So yeah, if you wouldn't mind, maybe we sort of we go there to begin with because you are very uh, eloquent and proficient in talking about connection beyond uh, most people. So yeah, maybe just start us off there with a little bit of a glimpse at this concept of connection and what you've learned and what you've felt throughout your life. Yeah, it's, it's such a huge theme for me and a thread running through my entire life is this ocean connection. Um, it comes through, I guess, my ancestry and family, place of belonging, where I grew up on the west coast of Ireland in Donegal, Donegal Bay, uh, kind of having access to the surf on my doorstep, um, particularly Rasnala Beach. It's a very uh, gentle 
uh, beach, perfect for beginners to learn on. It's also where my father and mother both learned to surf. Um, so my dad, when he was 12, along with his brothers. So they kind of that was in the early pioneering days of surfing in Ireland around the 60s. Um, and then my mom got into it through her teenage years. It was a real lifeline for her through those kind of turbulent years for any suppose, teenager growing up. <laughs> it's great to have something like that to kind of connect with. Um, and the same for me and both me and my sister are really fortunate to kind of be born into it in that sense. Um, and then even, you know, my grandparents didn't surf, but also, you know, on my dad's side, they kind of set up their business um, in tourism and a hotel and, and supported and sponsored the local surf club right at Rasnaula. And then my other uh, grandmother on my mum's side uh, was also really close to the sea. And she always said how it was like tonic for the soul um, and kind of later in her life, spending time with her, we'd always drive down to what used to be her favorite swim spot and just sit and like watch the ocean, just like as if we were at the movies, you know, hanging out and <laughs> watching it change. <laughs> so it's yeah, it's just been that innate part of uh, the fabric of of my life, family heritage, I kind of call it my blue heritage. Uh, and then it's since then woven into kind of every aspect of my life, so much so that I kind of, um, my work is around trying to better understand that connection and the evidence behind why we are so drawn to water. <laughs> I know we could talk about that um, <laughs> a huge amount. It's something that's come up a number of times in various podcast episodes, be that with Wallace J. Nichols or Cliff Capono and others that really are similarly trying to, to to piece together what on earth is going on in this connection that we as humans have to the ocean, to water. So maybe just give us a little bit of a sense of you know, some of those things that you've learned through academic research and lived experience. Whew, yeah, we're just stars. Um, I mean, it's remarkable to see. I, I really do credit, you know, Jay's work with Blue Mind and his book coming out I think, around 2014 being the first um, time I came across language that described what I have intuitively known and felt my whole life, which is the ocean's power to heal, um, especially if we have a healthy ocean. And yeah, and then since since then, there's been this huge kind of emerging trend, certainly in the research world I'm in as a marine social scientist, um, even um, being a marine social scientist, I mean, that language for that didn't exist um, 10 years ago either. Um, so it's, again, looking at that human relationship with the sea, the link between ocean health and human health. So you're seeing this huge kind of trend around what's called blue health now. So trying to understand the mental, psychological emotional, physical benefits or impacts of being in, on or near water. Um, and, and then in particular, obviously for me, it's about the sea, and, but also understanding about uh, the effect of different types of water bodies for different kinds of people. And, you know, as I said earlier, there's that, we have that innate pull towards water as humans because it's uh, essential for our survival, quite literally. Um, so, so much of our you know, culture and society has been shaped in and around water and the ocean. Um, but also it's a real place of paradox, right? It's also dangerous and risky and uh, evokes fear as well as uh, all the other emotions. So, yeah, it has quite an emotional impact on us, to say the least. So what will your relationship with the ocean be, for example, on a day like today? You, you mentioned that the swells that you would probably like to be chasing are yet to arrive. So give us a little bit of a glimpse of how the ocean will feature in a, in a normal day in the life of Eastkey. Yeah, well, everything revolves around the ocean. I'm, gonna, I'm really at odds with a, my, you know, like a regular calendar and, and a nine to five schedule. My whole life has been like that. So I definitely, it was a challenge being stuck to a timetable through school and, and university. <laughs> Because, you know, from a very early age, it was all about, you know, tide tables um, and what are the tides doing and where's the moon at and um, tra tracking, you know, the swells and, and learning how to read the weather charts. Uh, so, so much is dictated by what's going on in the ocean and, and local weather systems. Uh, and that hasn't really changed. So depending on that, I'll, you know, I'll, and I kind of feel like, I, yeah, whatever I do in my day, if I've if I've started it with connecting with water or getting in the water in some way, then it kind of, I can sort of almost relax <laughs> after that. 
it's like pressure off. It's kind of, I feel like, you know, worst case scenario, I got an amazing time to like be with, be with the water and I know how good it makes me feel. So yeah, and, and definitely the last year and a half have been so grateful uh, to have had access to that. And then um, really feeling the challenge of so many people not having access to those experiences uh, and just how essential they are, in particular for mental health, because I've really leaned on it. Um, these last 18 months especially it's like my relationship has shifted and I I'm drawn to it more now just for the the pleasure and the enjoyment completely yeah um I don't have that urge to sort of seek or chase or not yet maybe it'll kick in the winter time but yeah yeah I think that's a really important point there I think so many of us perhaps who have that existing relationship with water or the ocean have you know, really sorted out through the challenging times over the last 18 months, two years. But yeah, is there much out there about those people who have perhaps been isolated from their water therapy as a result of restrictions and rules, I wonder? I mean, that's a, a really problematic thing, right? If someone has a really strong dependence on access to water and ocean and to have that taken away from them is a, is a massive issue. Yeah, so you know the you know the last few, you know five years or or more <laughs> has been looking at understanding the I suppose the and kind of researching and evidencing the benefits when we have for our health when we have access to these experiences with water, and you know I'm sure it's been the same where you are as well, Tim. But certainly in, in Ireland, in this part of the world, I mean Ireland's a funny one. We're an island nation, cold water. So there hasn't actually been a very big kind of um, water sports culture until more recently, you know, with better wetsuits and things. Uh, and the same with swimming and like sea swimming. But really this last, in particular this last year or so, there's just been an explosion of people being drawn to water and so many stories of, um, you know, people in their adult life kind of going back into the water for the first time since they were kids or maybe having only ever maybe dipped a toe in it or paddled in it actually going and wanting this full body immersion um and studies we've done prior prior to that really showed that something like in particular sea swimming because it's so immersive has this wonderful kind of connective power uh that it taps into like the connective properties of water so by that i mean like that kind of multi full multi-sensory experience that takes some head into our bodies so we're able to presence uh, and be really connected with our sense of self and not caught up in in all the, the kind of chronic stories and scripts that are running right now um that are of, of things happening beyond our control so it kind of brings us back into the now in that way and then also it's this wonderful way to socially connect kind of safely right now being outdoors in these kind of little swim pods uh, as I call them there's you know people in the water and, and a lot of the time they're just bobbing there and having a chat you know rather than going and swimming a doing a 5k swim and we also find then when the research we've done in terms of the social science is that it's very rare anyone says their motivation for doing something like that is is for fitness it's it's nearly always for how it makes them feel for that emotional mental well-being um, or the social connection and then the other part then the connective part is the connecting to something that's so much bigger than ourselves like the ocean like that really profound sense of being held especially in the sea with the salt water um, and the kind of almost freedom from those earthly limits you know that frees us even from gravity for a moment so there's that it takes away that struggle even uh yeah so there's just i mean i obviously could riff on this for a very long time uh not to mention what's going on you know in terms of the you know the neuroscience and the yeah i mean the way i look at it is that um i feel like western contempt you know western conventional science is kind of catching up with um very ancient wisdom like we've known the the um the power of water to heal for millennia you know through throughout human history and it's still very much alive and you know more indigenous cultures um but it's this i think there's this lovely interaction that happens especially with water it's because we we sense ourselves in a different way through water but i also think like the water is sensing us so there's this this kind of mutuality or reciprocity happening like when we enter the water uh we literally um it's it's like it's all, all also changing that environment, you know, when we put ourselves into it because we're part of it. Um, so I kind of like looking at it that way. 
Maybe we just, yeah, go off a little bit and, and dive into that because, you know, you've gone into conventional science and I think also about Dr. Cliff Capono and his efforts in mm. conventional science versus this innate, you know, Indigenous wisdom. And so, yeah, what's it been like, I suppose, to try and marry that innate spiritual understanding that you it appears that you felt versus what conventional science expected of you to come and meet there how, how was that journey for you in, in, in bridging the two oh such a good question and I, I mean I've had some amazing conversations with with Cliff um and he's been yeah I've just learned so much from his his approach as well and how he bridges those worlds um and just the yeah the way he's really helped with my framing and uh, perspective on this too but there's always that inherent tension and I think especially as you know I've come at it from a place of real love and connection as a surfer um and through that that kind of bond really um and as you say that that spiritual connection you know even again going back to my grandmother who would have been very religious you know, um uh, but even in that the water was so much a part of uh her daily practice and ritual like we could never like leave the house cross that threshold from home into the world outside without you know being anointed with the holy water and her little holy water font at the door but I, I just really, I really appreciate that now in my life is this kind of really kind of, again, sacred kind of connection of like the, of water being able to protect us um, and the power of water in so many ways. And it infuses so many different cultures and religions for a reason, you know, um, but to get yeah, to go back then to the tension within the sci world of science and spirituality, I think what's happening and you see it in particular in work like um Dr. Cliff Capono's is this what I'm talking about in terms of that reciprocal relationship or how water senses us and we sense water it, it's coming out in, in research like Cliff's doing with it literally altering our, our microbiome um, the fact that we're you know and that's something I write about too that we're not um, of course we're not separate but you know even if we think about it in a physiological level our skin is kind of a barrier but it's porous and you know, as a surfer like you you know you get uh you know get the washing machine get totally rinsed uh, you get you know our bodies are totally modified by being in the sea and that, that environment even with having like surfer's ear <laughs> just adapting to like wind and cold water but you know, we don't really want that but it's just an amazing kind of bodily response right um so yeah what am i trying to say here about the I, I feel like it's less of a rift than it's made out to be. I think the challenge for me navigating those worlds um, as also as a scientist, and I, I really feel I struggle with when it's the kind of science that tries to reduce everything to the sum of its parts. And so I'm excited now by being able to draw on you know, systems thinking and ecological perspectives that are looking at the system as a whole and actually and science is going more and more that way, looking at the interconnection and interdependency of everything um, from a systems point of view and from this point of view of, of kind of um, a holism, uh, which, of course, is mirroring uh, the wisdom that was already there, right, in um, a lot of indigenous cultures. <laughs> um, um, but it, and it's great to see that kind of uh, convergence happening. Um, my concern also lies around, you know, with this promoting the benefits of things like, you know, blue space, as it's called, uh, water environments and blue health. And we are, is there a risk that we end up maybe almost commodifying the ocean again as something that makes us feel good, like turning it into like prescribing it as a pill uh, running the risk of over medicalizing <laughs> these experiences as well as recognizing the profound therapeutic benefit for so many different groups uh, and that it's something that you know if we looked after is so widely available like no matter where wherever we are there's usually water nearby um, so yeah I haven't I don't have the answers <laughs> but it's there's definitely lots of questions to pull apart yeah so many places I'd like to take the conversation from there, but we could be here for hours if I'm not careful. I think it's just remarkable that even just thinking about this little podcast that does its little thing and having conversations with Jay and Cliff and yourself, I mean, how is this tribe of marine social scientists and people who are trying to put understanding around things that 
sure they should be felt, but we've let them drift away. That, that, you know, we, we haven't let them percolate the mainstream. You know, through your academic research and the community that you interact with, does it excite you that there is a, a wave of people putting out papers and putting out content mm. that is, 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 give, is giving some tactile science to what should be so much more innate and so much more known? Yeah, I actually, I am excited. I think, you know, the surf community, you know, there's like millions of surfers worldwide already engaged with the sea in a, in a much more intimate way than sort of most folks are uh, and, you know, and for other, other water-minded, ocean-minded people. But isn't that a wonderful opportunity to actually like bring this, the science to life and we experience it in a lived way and in a really bodily way, like so to take it out of so-called ivory towers, because it's really about, you know, the science is how we make meaning of the world around us and our place in it and connect more deeply. Um, that's my take anyway. <laughs> um, but I'm seeing it happen. You know, it's no surprise that, you know, uh, someone like you have, you know, Cliff, as a, there's not that many of surfer scientists, but they're there is it's changing there's definitely more and more and there's natalie fox for example who's looking to do her phd now as well and has this brilliant citizens of surf project and what part of the un uh, ocean decade so to really mobilize um surfers as a community who are already engaged and yet to tap into their experiences of of, of the ocean and to be able to bring back and collect data um, um, and what's happening in the ocean, making like real-time observations. So becoming like um, citizen scientists. But uh, yeah, almost, I feel like it's almost like bringing the story of the ocean back <laughs> into our culture. How do we do that? Surfing is a really powerful way to do that. Um, plus it, you know, surfing engages people in a way you can kind of almost do it by stealth, like bringing in the, <laughs> the message and the science. And the, so it's great to see different forms of activism happening and, you know, so uh, there's so many great voices in that space emerging and um, Lauren Hill comes to mind, for example, as well. And um, the conversations they have with the Water People podcast with the book she wrote uh, on the history of of women surfing as well, giving voice to that whole kind of lineage and what we can learn from um I guess those who've gone before us as well as as the new stuff, right? Um so yeah, it's it's really cool to see. On that, so my next point was going to be we're going to start talking about your your new book, Saltwater in the Blood. But because you you brought up Lauren and the Water People podcast, one of the things I really enjoyed about your conversation with Lauren and Dave there was sort of that recognition that surfers can quite often be celebrated as these free feeling, um, you know. And it's, it's, it's a lot of self-indulgence and selfishness mm. to surfing, but you, you did start to speak about the, the, the raft of relatively unintended consequences that has come from the explosion of surfing across the world in the last 50 years. And maybe this is a little sort of prelude to how not only you've embraced that idea of surf adventure and being, you know, toted as the first person to surf in a country, but then being restorative, regenerative, and looking at surfing as a remarkable opportunity to create connection, to heal other social challenges. Maybe you can give us your take on the downsides to surf adventurism and exploration versus what it can be to restore and regenerate. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I think my my surfing path um, has definitely been you know very twisty turny, probably because of those moments of introspection and reflection of, of actually taking a look at what impact is it really having and who is it benefiting. So I've journeyed from being you know competitive. You know, I started competing from the age of eight just for the the fun of it. You know, at the local surf club and as a way to hang out with uh, all my pals on the beach, and then and then joined the Irish surf team at the age of twelve which for me was like, that's a ticket to like get out of Donegal, the remotest, most marginalized part of Ireland uh, and out into the world, you know, to like out into that like wide blue beyond horizon and to travel, right? And growing up with the, the stories of surfing, the narrative very much dominates of surf travel, adventure, exploration. Of course, all the things now and I look back, you know, at the time quite 
naively excited by, but also has this you know, huge element of colonialism and appropriation and imposing a kind of certain kind of westernized version of surf culture into places where um, it hasn't always had a very positive effect. Um, and recognizing that then as I also, as I, you know, travel to places, they, the, you know, the beauty and privilege of experiencing amazing waves in incredible places like the Mentawai Islands and, um, but just feeling like I was in this kind of bubble and it was so far removed from what what's happening kind of beneath the surface, wanting to get in, like below the skin of a place. And as a competitive surfer, you kind of, it's sort of a bit of a, it's all about the waves as if the waves existed in isolation <laughs> from where the place where they break um and uh who else experiences them or isn't able to and so it yeah all these questions started to just burn up for me and then even the you know the impact of the travel itself environmentally um whilst also recognizing and appreciating for me how it's also really through surfing i've had these incredible connections it's been so eye-opening to experience whole other cultures and worlds um, through the lens of surfing, where I think if I didn't have that, I wouldn't have had the kind of depth um, of, of connection in terms of the people I met and then what I learned about people and places through surfing. So it started for me then to pull me more and more in that direction of like, ah, oh, there's, there's something here. <laughs> if, if I could pursue this in a different way and learn from it, you know, learn from others through something like sharing the experience of surfing uh, rather than extracting surf experiences <laughs> from places I go. Uh, so that then, you know, leads to um, going to somewhere in a, in a very long roundabout way, somewhere like Iran in the Middle East, uh, obviously not known for surf. <laughs> um, and it just being what a what a vehicle to kind of experience a place that comes with so much baggage and um, a very misunderstood part of the world, very complex Um ancient part of the world as well and to be to be able to be there in terms of the timing where surfing hadn't taken root and just just the whole kind of convergence of all these elements that catalyzed the emergence of surfing to witness a sport being initiated in a place like that by women and then now you know that was when I first go there 2010 um 2013 was when we really kind of did the surf trip with other Iranian sportswomen that was documented in Mariam Poiseau's documentary Into the Sea so you know that's nearly it's nearly a decade ago now let's say and just to see it um still growing and thriving really having taken hold as a sport uh women and girls uh able to participate in this in this mixed sport um it's kind of phenomenal to see that and having for me just being born into it and growing up with it and almost like can't imagine a world where for me not having that ocean connection and then to see other people discover it now at this stage in their lives so what I what I learned from that is that there's these really like universal experiences regardless of how different you may seem to be um um and especially, I think, for women and girls, I can speak more to that, too, why I think it's different. But also then recognizing, actually, yeah, there are also very, very specific, uh, very different barriers um, to accessing these experiences, depending on a whole load of factors of, you know, where where we live, who we are, how you know, our identities, um, multiple, <laughs> not just gender, um, uh, and so on. So it was a way then, I guess, to look at what, can something like surfing, having these experiences in the sea in this sort of playful way, can it can it help create connection where before there might have been conflict or can it start to soften some of these edges um, that we kind of put up uh, on land? Mm, yeah, I just, I could almost imagine it being a little bit addictive, the opportunity to bring something like surfing and what we call stoke uh you know to people to bring the froth i mean it must be just have been captivating um to do that so you can now look back obviously and and connect with those people and and see the legacy of of those moments in your life um how is the surf scene in that particular region of iran now 
Yeah, I will. I mean, I will say it definitely happened in a really unexpected way. So it didn't happen in a real evangelical way. If I'm going to convert the masses to surfing, because <laughs> I think it's the bee's knees. Um, but it just happened that I, because it kind of way in a way, for me at least when I travel, and I also think surfing does lend itself to this kind of beginner's mindset. And and in a way, because we're so focused on let's see if we could find surf. So in this you know very mm. remote part of Iran and Baluchistan. Um, next to the border of Pakistan, there's just a, a you know small stretch of coast exposed to open ocean swell. Um, in a way, almost being so focused on that, it was I was able to like drop the you know the the, the much I suppose the bigger narratives that might have um, otherwise held me back around Iran in particular at the time, and there just being so much fear around even going there, and a lot of resistance and a total lack of support. Any anyways for <laughs> me going there by my you know sponsor former sponsors at the time and even trying to get funding to make the documentary to capture what we felt like we didn't know I suppose what I was trying to say is like we went in not with a total mm. un, it was a total unknown and it completely depended on how it was going to be received which could have gone either way and just to be received in such an open welcoming way especially by the local community or very you know traditional more conservative uh, and different ethnic minority you know to have such a I was I suppose aware that this this at the time I wasn't aware I was just going and surfing and of course it's going to attract attention in it in surfing covered uh, in a place where it's never been seen before um, and the response was really positive but I also was aware yeah this thing surfing has it, it's, it's going to change things it can, it can have a really big impact and I and within that there are certain tensions like it I, I also have seen the really negative impact surfing can have when it arrives somewhere. So I was like, oh, how, how is this going to go? But in a way, because there was no blueprint for how to do it, um, and we were able to do it in a way that was very inclusive from the get-go and going back multiple years to do workshops that were designed to encourage um, local people and um, women and girls to access coaching to become surf instructors in water safety, how to fix boards, you know, all those things to, to bring them in early on to, to give it, um, I suppose, that support it needs to grow on its own. And then just stepping back <laughs> is also a really important thing to do and, and, and see how it was going to emerge. And then continuing, I suppose, to keep the conversation going. So right now, yeah, the... Um, it's it's quite remarkable. There's this young girl, is nine years old, Venus Baluch, and I'm in touch with her and her father on Instagram. Um, so Instagram's this amazing, also amazing platform for the kind of storytelling in places like that who otherwise wouldn't have access maybe to a lot of the internet, social media. Um, but just this, she is so frothing on surfing. And she's from the local, you know, Baluch community. She received the ISA surf scholarship, I think, last year. Um and it's just like constantly uploading clips of surfing these kind of like uh, onshore desert waves um, and skateboarding then in the, the off season. Um, but so that, that gives me great hope, you know, and, um, and the fact that, the, you know, there were women up for pioneering something like that, not knowing how it might be received in the beginning. So we had Mona, uh, a snow pro snowboarder and Shala, a swimmer and diver who were featured in the documentary Into the Sea and then and then many other uh, women since then. Just, yeah. So there's a, yeah, wonderful energy there. <laughs> I'd love mm -hmm. to go back. You will, I'm sure, one day. Speaking of pioneering, why don't we just take a bit of a, a detour into the world of big wave surfing and um, your journey there. So, yeah, tell us, I mean, I'm not a big wave surfer. Um, it's only a very small minority of the, the global surfing community who decide to to go there and put in all the effort required um so was it always written the the fact that you had such strong surfing ties in your family or your local community what what took you there and, and maybe give us a bit of a, a sense of your experience into big wave surfing yes such a good question i mean it's something that i unpacked in, in when i when i was writing the book as well trying to following those threads because there's so many threads in our lives right uh, but it's it's only by doing that and like following the threads you kind of realize how and why it maybe all came together and I didn't maybe see at the time so it's a combination of things I and mean, yes for one growing up in particular my with my you know dad and my uncle um Willie who would have 
you know, they both surfed Toto Santos way back in the day. And my uncle Willie came back with stories from Madeira and surfing Jardim de Mar before they put in the seawall. And so the, these were all kind of like built up in my head as these kind of really, you know, almost mythological stories um, to be passed on to me. And then just growing the nature of where I grew up in Ireland, like we're exposed to such raw uh, open ocean Atlantic swells. Um, it gets you know, pretty rough and wild and just always kind of following because I had that mentorship with in particular with my dad and the trust kind of just following him out. So that kind of probably helped introduce me to kind of heavier waves. Um, and also then being in a surfing family. So my, my cousin, Neil Britton, um, and myself, he, we kind of teamed up um, when the big wave scene in Ireland was starting to kick off. Uh, it was hard to miss because we've got Mullock Moor literally in our backyard from where, where I live um, in Rasnala. You can see the headland and you can kind of see even the, the white water when the surf's up. Um, so that was, yeah, that was kind of our training ground, Mullock Moor being, for those listening, and one of the more famous big wave spots in Ireland and I guess recognised uh, globally. Uh, local surfer Connor Maguire rode a wave that's over well, was over sixty foot uh, there last winter, which is you know, oh, there goes Wolfie. Extraordinary. <laughs> mm. um, but yeah, so it, it wasn't it wasn't an intention to be a big wave surfer. I better bring Wolfie into this. Come here. Yeah, hey. come on in, Wolfie. You're more than welcome. Come here. Come here. Come here. <laughs> okay. Okay. Just so people know. Okay, if you're listening to the podcast, this is Wolfie. <laughs> Great bark, Wolfie. Little terrier with a real attitude. Uh, yeah. Oh dear. That's <laughs> <laughs> all good. Anyways, um, but yeah, it's it's. I don't know. I think for for quite a few winters, I also went to Hawaii from the age of kind of seventeen, eighteen when I finished school. Um, as a kind of way to, I don't know, it's a real, I guess, proving testing ground. Um, mm. But I, you know, I just really got my ass handed to me. Because the, the waves were just, there was a whole other level of intensity and the scene over there. And then I find when I came back home to, I kept coming back home to Ireland. So I figured there's something about the waves here more than anywhere else. And then in a way, the fact that I'm in such a you know, thick winter wetsuit, you know, five or six mil, it kind of felt like I had my armor on. So it felt like it was easier to handle bigger waves here. So most of the big wave surfing I did has been in Ireland. And just the timing of being there again, when it was kind of just the scene was just kicking off and it was very you know there was no pressure there was no it was just a way of almost yeah finding other corners of the coastline at first to explore and access other parts of the coast uh, that we couldn't otherwise get to you know with, with having jet skis at, um, in the beginning because we're like well surfing's starting to get really busy here <laughs> let's see if we can find somewhere else and then and then those yeah I just had this a strange pull um all through all through my 20s in particular what's your relationship with big wave surfing now it's a good question I kind of feel like it's it, there's an ebb and a flow like my whole relationship with surfing is all been one that's always been evolving and you know encountering big wave surfing kind of arrived at a time in my life when it was real I suppose identity forming years maybe in my 20s where I was I felt like I was just going to the edge and extreme of everything like I did my I did my PhD and then I uh you know pioneered waves at like Mullock Moor and the cliffs of Moher at Aileen's and I just kind of went full throttle <laughs> into like everything <laughs> and now um I don't know it's just because I'm getting older and I'm slowing down I'm making excuses here for myself but no it's and even then relationships so the dynamic was with the crew with you know, it's also kids and individualistic things, big wave surfing, but really it depends on, on a good team and partnerships. Um, and especially when we were in bigger days towing Mullock more, uh, having it, Neil Britton, my cousin is my tow partner. Um, it was just, it's a wonderful bond um, and it works so well. And, but then, you know, you do get older and then he has family and then had kids and became a dad and, um, and so it just became harder to sort of weave life in and around it, right? Being able to drop everything and go and jump on a swell, which is also easier to do in your 20s. So like, you have a lot less commitments. Um, but now I think, yeah, I'm excited again for this winter. I'm going to be obviously home a lot more in Ireland. Um, 
Tammy Lee Smith, an amazing big wave charger from South Africa, has kind of moved over to the UK, to Cornwall. And so she just sent me a message this morning, kind of motivating me to get my shit together um, that she was going to come over. And so I feel like if I have another, you know, um, a buddy in the water, it'll help me push push the edge again. Um, and maybe another female presence, which I haven't had really in the big wave stuff in Ireland. Um, so, yeah, I'm excited and curious to see how that goes. Maybe, maybe I'll just, you know, be her moral support in the channel, but maybe we can egg, egg each other on. So I guess where I'm at now with it is just kind of openly curious um, and just going to see what happens. Mm. Well, you've got uh, plenty of other things keeping you very busy and keeping us all very informed and entertained. Um, the new book, it's only, is it only days away from being released? Yeah, blood? less than a week. <laughs> oh, congratulations. Um, you know, I was really lucky that you, you were able to share a, a PDF with me and I had such a great time um, reading through it and obviously your beautiful illustrations that bookend each chapter. And yeah, it reminds me, I guess, of those, those books written by surfers but are written for everyone. And it's really beautiful how you tie in those nice little soft and subtle explanations of surfing terminology and references just to help everyone. So, um, yeah, tell mm. us a little bit about how long it was in the works, give the, the listeners a bit of a glimpse of what to expect yep. when they pick up this beautiful book. Yeah, so the book is called Saltwater in the Blood. Um, it's kind of all about um, my exploration of surfing, natural cycles and the sea's power to heal, um, and very much... It, I suppose it draws on surfing as this really powerful metaphor for how we live and lead um, more kind of, I suppose, yeah, more, more resilient, more connected, more creative lives. So that, you know, how we can sort of translate some of those lessons learned back into our everyday lives. And in a way, as you say, that's really accessible, whether you're, you know, a surfer or not. Uh, but that's kind of, I suppose, my vehicle uh, or medium <laughs> to write through. Um, and even the title Saltwater in the Blood so I borrowed that from my dad who's an artist and one of his art exhibitions was called uh, Saltwater in the Ink um, and I think it's obviously so fitting with a family like mine um, but the fact that yeah we as humans literally have salt water in our blood it's such a wonderful way also talking about connection to connect with the ocean um, I think it also came about around the time in around 2018, I'd worked on a short film uh, with Matt Smith and Andrew Knader called A Lunar Cycle, um, supported by Finisterre. So it was the first kind of, I suppose, surf edit that I put out. But I don't know yeah, if you've seen it or not, but it's definitely a very kind of abstract creative take on this, I guess, a more intimate, um, immersive connection with the sea and my part of the coasts throughout a, throughout a lunar cycle. Um, kind of yeah exploring a lot of in particular those spaces as I call them spaces in between uh even what the energy of what happens and, and where we're at in in between waves so it's not even all about the the glory moments that we usually see or the, that's usually the only thing that gets captured um so yeah I guess I just wanted to sort of experience it or express it in a more certainly a more feminine lens um by that I mean kind of looking at the you know the even all like the messy elements the entanglements the uh when I talk about big wave surfing in it too it's kind of unpacking it as a as a much more you know about the qualities of vulnerability and and surrender and letting go and they're uh, rather than it being this sort of hyped up uh, <laughs> you know, let's go conquer the waves or wow, he rode such a beast or, you know, the, just the language that gets used, it sort of doesn't fit. I, it certainly doesn't fit with my experience of it being this very, uh, and I think it's for like that for a lot of big wave surfers, it's actually a very stripped back, um, exposing vulnerable experience that's quite spiritual, uh, many would say, I guess. So yeah, there's 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 all those kinds of things in, in the book, and but it's really about... Um, I guess the importance of our connection with the more than human world, how do we restore that? Um, a lot of it is also around the theme of belonging and, and finding that kind of sense of place um, wherever we are and how we, how that can be done through this connection in, in this case with water and the sea. Mm, yeah, it's a, uh, it's a great read. So I definitely encourage everyone to get their hands on it. 
and yeah, that short film, A Lunar Cycle with Andrew Kinnear, I know Andrew, and um, mm. he did a fantastic, you all did a fantastic job with that, your, your words, those images, the whole production is just stellar, really great. Yeah, and it's a classic for in terms of Irish surf culture because we didn't get a single like sun ray the whole time we filmed. It was just which lent itself to the kind of like the, the kind of, I suppose the moodiness and atmospherics. But it was yeah, <laughs> very it always surprises. Winter in Ireland, it does surprise me a lot that um, there's a bunch of Australian filmmakers who just have such a strong desire mm. to go north and to film these dark ocean films and. You know, they do exist, those dark coastline settings deep down in southern Tasmania or South Australia. You can go and capture that, but um, maybe there's nothing quite like the North Atlantic to capture that mood. <laughs> <laughs> no. So yeah, we'll kind of start to, hmm. yeah, we'll start to, to wrap up this fantastic conversation, Iski. Of course, um, you know, the book, it, it starts to round out towards the end about, you know, ocean disconnect disconnection and you know the you know the perilous state of planet ocean and the, the broader climate and environment so maybe just give us a little bit of a sense of where you know your head and your heart are now is there certain environmental issues either locally or globally that you're particularly concerned and, and driven to address um, and maybe even some some optimistic news of, of things that are happening Oh, yeah, <laughs> it's really, it's a really tough one. I feel like so much of my life, I've I've been training and committing for fighting to define ways to better, to have a have a better relationship with with water, especially um, how to protect our ocean and love it and restore it. And then, you know, where I grew up, we were on the edge of an SAC, so special area of conservation, and sort of a European Union kind of habitat designation. Um, to protect certain species and important habitats and it's a kind of a saltwater a brackish lagoon wetlands a really kind of special unique habitat and we get amazing like uh, numbers of you know winter migratory birds and whooper swans and so really quite, quite special and, and then the, the sea or the bay is kind of just on the other side of it through these sand dunes um, and then I just came home uh, after kind of being you know away with with my partner on his farm for most of the summer and there's just this shocking algal bloom that I'd never seen before so but having a connection to a place in particular body of water my whole life um and then to see it change so suddenly and rapidly and be um in such such poor health you know they had this sort of carpet of green algae covering at least a third maybe half of the lake um mm. it was just devastating and kind of shocking to me and I feel I'm really feeling a mix of um well obviously I feel a certain responsibility um maybe almost uh shame that it's happened on my watch um, and then a feeling like wow if sometimes we're so caught at looking at the bigger picture and then then the whole the scale and size of the ocean that there's a tendency to for I don't know is it that we forget or just not that it's no lesser it's no less important to care for Dernish Lock that body of water on my own doorstep than it is the whole ocean like it's the one in the same story I suppose is what I'm getting at and so for me it was a real wake-up call of, okay what can I do for for my water today and then every day and then how do you create a whole culture of care around that of everyone who lives in the catchment around this this body of water to to value what how do we value the water that we live with and that supports us and of course it you know the lake is dying as we're trying to find ways to obviously to to protect it and heal it and restore it um i, I don't know if that would be possible and there's just real you, know, you bump up against at a government political level total inertia disinterest complete lack of will when it comes to water pollution it's very a very big issue in ireland because the dominance in particular the pollution comes from land-based runoff and agricultural um fertilizers and there's such a powerful agricultural lobby in ireland as in probably most parts of the world and so it just gets largely ignored and the, the situation's really deteriorating. And yet we have the legislation in place. We have really good policies here in this part of the world. Um, and so for me now, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm really in this place of, of tension of trying to find my way. And I feel like what if I can't 
protect and care and look after the body of water in my own community and my own doorstep then on the dark days then I think god what hope is there for an entire ocean but also I feel like well actually you know that's where the that's where the work happens and the healing happens and then it also means that any of us can do the work that's needed when we're up against such an overwhelming issue as like a total climate breakdown and the oceans <laughs> um are are beginning to also die um that in a way it's like yeah but it's just a, i think there's real power in the local like what we can bring to where we are in our community and what's in our own backyard is is so crucial to the bigger picture as well so yeah I'll, yeah stay tuned and <laughs> see how we i think it it's about then the, i recognize because of the complexity of the challenge even at that scale locally really requires a lot of listening and understanding to others and, and community building. I realized if make any meaningful change here, um, community building is essential. Um, and so we, we need people who are really good at, <laughs> at doing that in, in this mix and fight for the ocean, which often gets left out. You know, we talk about collective action. Um, building community is no easy thing. Um, and I also think that's what the surf community could really excel at. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. that's a very. <laughs> no, I, I think know, that's... Right. Yeah, it's 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 tough. It's really tough right now. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, but I think there's so much to what you just shared there. I mean, we perhaps as as those with the ability to have an outspoken voice and try to bring awareness to the macro, uh, we <laughs> still have some duty and obligation to be having a close focus on on the micro and the close to us but at the same time there's so much to provide in terms of building that larger tribe of custodians and instilling in in the many in order to be the eyes on the ground who can especially if you start like you said there it might not be easy but exploring that methodology and that process that can be scaled and replicated and there probably is enough in the in the books that we can start to understand and reference, but things are always changed. Powerful lobbies come in, politics change, and and it's exhausting. Mm. It's bloody exhausting. Well, I I kind of feel like because I've been really confronted with this chat, quite a, it feels like a more personal challenge after having you know been quite you know zoomed out looking at the bigger picture for a very long time. I feel like it's. To me, they what what matters, um, and what I realize now, I would love to have access to is understanding from others who've been down this road. Like, there's also we don't share enough the the solutions, the celebrations, the victories, and how that was achieved. So, like, there's so many great examples of you know community based action having a real impact. But it'd be wonderful if could there be a space where um, perhaps this is it. <laughs> where we we kind of I suppose that's also like this such collective wisdom and I feel like it's rather than feeling so isolated and not knowing where to start to be able to learn from others like the the process of change that it takes to protect a river a water body a coast an ocean Um, I I think there's amazing examples of that out there and I'd love to hear from how others have done it Um, and in terms of the the, the process, the tools, the, the learnings, the, so a way to sort of bring that together and shine more light on that would be really brilliant to have more of those exchanges uh, and also be really empowering um, at a, you know, the local and the global. Um, so having, having more of that, I think, would be really impactful as well. Mm, that's it. And well, I I'm thinking as I speak of, of Belinda yeah. Baggs, who in particular, who you interve- um, interviewed pretty recently as well. Um, and with her, her surf activism, um, you know, like, that's a great example. Of, and then is there a space where you just love to kind of like sit down and have a powwow with all these people who've been down this road and the water protectors and, and even in you know, the Patagonia campaign, Blue Heart campaign in, in Eastern Europe for rivers. And it would just feel much more, feel a lot less isolating and feel much more like, okay, actually, yeah, we've, we've got this, we're part of something bigger. Because I, I think that's the challenge. We're made to feel that we're individual. Um, 
that we can only make a difference to our individual consumer choices, which I completely, <laughs> I think that's just, yeah, that's to sort of try to keep us isolated. So I, I feel like, yeah, I'm, I'm excited by the potential that comes from this coming together uh, in spaces like this that we're having now, even with the podcast um, oh. and, and even different companies like seeing the likes of Finisterre, um, organize an ocean activist camp earlier this summer called C7. Uh, so I think, mm. yeah, these, these, those things really make a difference. And increasingly important. I know that I get a boost if I happen across the small minority of good news that appears in the social media feed and, you know, people that are making a dedicated effort to, to not just sprinkle, but, you know, really provide a good dose of, of good news and, and stories that can, you know, I get really motivated by a dire predicament because it, it puts fuel in my tank and, mm. and gets me going for the next few miles. But I also love that little bit of just, oh, yeah, there's a win there and there's an example over here. And I think it's a really good idea you just shared there around a forum to allow more of that and, and learnings yeah. to, be, to be known. Yeah, absolutely. That and, and just to add to what you were saying, I think that's why, you know, Wallace J. Nichols work so important in Blue Mind and of like connecting with water. We, if we don't have that connection, I think you have changed on a bigger scale of how we create a cultural shift and bring the value of water and the ocean into our culture. Um, it's it's a very intergenerational thing, isn't it? And so it's about, as he says, it, yeah, connect with your, like find your water and connect with it, bring somebody else with you, <laughs> you know, to like create the ripple effect. Someone who otherwise mm. maybe wouldn't or, or, or feels disconnected from it. Yeah. Mm. Well, Iski, we, we spoke beforehand. We were meant to do a little reading from the book uh, earlier in the conversation. <laughs> but I wasn't gonna I wasn't gonna let it slide because I would love to hear your your uh, those words come from come from you. But before we do that, is there anything else that you wanted to talk today uh, to to reference before a little reading and before we say goodbye to our listeners? Oh yeah, actually, just maybe to bring it back to on a, on a more positive note as well. <laughs> We, did, we started off in the conversation touching on like um, access and inclusion in, in the ocean. And I suppose a lot of this, you know, beach spaces and surfing can feel maybe quite exclusionary for, for many people. Um, but I'm working on a, a beautiful research kind of collaboration consortium uh, called Inclusi in Europe. So it's about across five different countries, seven organizations, most of them surf therapy organizations who work with people with physical disabilities, sensory impairment. Uh, and so Inclusi is kind of coming together again to sort of tap into that collective intelligence and wisdom to create a, I suppose, a methodology and best practices uh, and to, make, to help make surfing in the sea more accessible for people in particular with physical disabilities um, and to learn how to, how to do that better and kind of, I suppose, make that more mainstream in terms of through the training and the coaching. Um, so it's, yeah, it's a, it's just such a, yeah, really great motivating project to work on um, and also learning so much from different different perspectives of how people experience the sea and the benefits uh, when, when we come together in that way. So that's, yeah, that's really exciting. I'm working on that for the next couple of years. And uh, yeah, I think that's that's kind of really it. So it's, it's keep, keep worth, on uh, <laughs> worth adding there that, you know, your website is a really great resource to mm. sort of take a dive. I'm sure people listening in have just gone, wow, this uh, this person does a lot. <laughs> so you can go <laughs> and check out all the great projects. There's a great, you know, there's a lot of videos there that people can click on and, and actually yeah, go yeah. and see. Yeah, yeah. You can geek out on all the kind of blue care, blue space research that's on there and various publications and try to make as much of it as, you know, open access as possible as well. Yeah, great. Super. All right. Well, if you wouldn't mind uh, a little reading from the new yeah. book, Saltwater in the Blood. I have it here. Saltwater in the Blood. Mm -hmm. And actually, given, yeah, given the conversation we've had, I, I think there's a section in the intro um, that might be really fitting. Um, mm. Yeah, I'm just going to read this short part and um, bring it back into context. So I, connection of Ireland and how my own sense of place and belonging has probably influenced this story and, and the book itself. In Ireland, there has always been a special acknowledgement of the power and potential of these places of encounter. These liminal spaces or thresholds where something is always about to begin or be lost. 
This understanding has become drastically subdued beneath layers of artificial lighting, the dominance of linear notions of time, the confinement of indoor living and attachment to screens, cocooning us from the unpredictable, changeable elements of the outdoors. Still, the reminders of our former intimacy with the living world remain present in the deliberate circular placement of ancient standing stones upright in a salt marsh, or the concentric circles carved into rocks and still visible thousands of years later, or the scraps of fabric tied to the branches of an ash tree next to a holy well, fresh water springing out of the ground above the tide line, where people still go to make offerings. These markers in the landscape are evidence of our lost attunement to the natural rhythms and cycles of life, the solar and lunar cycles and their sway over Earth's watery cycles, including ocean waves, tides, gestation and menstruation, natural cycles that, despite our separation from them, continue to coordinate and orchestrate the complex processes of life. A cyclical approach to life allows for both the ebb and the flow, the waxing and waning, the luminosity and the darkness. If something is lost, perhaps it can also be found again. Mm, beautiful, Eski. I've so enjoyed this conversation today. Yeah, and I really, me too. I humbly thank <laughs> you for your time and for all that you do for Planet Ocean and its inhabitants. So thank you again. Thank you so much, Tim. Yeah, brilliant. <laughs> Thanks, thank everyone, you everyone for tuning for in. Listening. Yeah. All right. Have a great evening and day, everyone.